dispatchers uh, were called at 11.13 a.m. There's a fire. Uh, you really need to come quick. Two minutes later, firefighters arrived on the scene and they saw smoke pouring out of the Pink House apartments located on Loring Avenue in Brooklyn. Through the plumes, the, the firefighters spotted two boys and a fourth floor window. They were trapped. They had their faces through the grates, said firefighter Frank Blackstone. They weren't screaming, but they were crying. Blackstone was initially planning on setting up a portable ladder, but once he and they spotted the kids, the firefighters realized that they didn't have much time. So Blackstone went up in a bucket ladder, and the bucket ladder broke through some branches as it reached skyward, and when the bucket reached the fourth floor window, Blackstone, at risk to his own life, broke through the windows with an axe and jumped into the blaze. Well, inside the fire, he found the two boys, Tremaine five and Darian eight, and he scooped them into his arms and he brought them to safety. This, in so many words, is what Christmas is and is all about. Christmas is about a hero named Jesus who enters a world on fire in order to rescue his loved ones trapped inside. And this is the true story of Christmas. The nativity scenes that you are used to are not bad, but they are too cute and too neat and too tidy. They represent a Disney-esque version of Christmas, a world of pleated robes and soft complexions and smiling sheep. But what Christmas really is, is shocking and jarring and urgent. It's not so much a birthday party. It's more a rescue mission, initiated by Father, Son, and Spirit. You know, all is not calm in the world now, and all was not calm in the world back then. And Jesus may have been born in obscurity in some backwater town of some backwater province, but his birth was anything but silent. No doubt his mother Mary screamed in the pangs of labor as she birthed a baby boy in an animal stall filled with hay and manure. The Son of God broke into our broken world and burning world as a blood-covered baby. Risky and vulnerable. Like firefighter Frank Blackstone, knowing how to put fires out, but not immune to the flames. Capable of being hurt. And indeed, Jesus was hurt. So that we could escape. Just like Tremaine. Just like Darian. And Christmas is five days away. And I'm curious, are you ready for it? I'm not talking about gifts under a tree. I'm talking about waiting and longing for Jesus. Do you want Jesus? Do you need Jesus? Or are you bored? Are you apathetic? Has the shock of Christmas fallen flat? 
The secret to recovering the joy of Christmas is this. Recovering the joy of Christmas necessitates that you know you need it. If you want to celebrate Christmas with joy, you need to know that you need it. If you are comfy and cozy and A-OK this year, well then, this is just going to be another day for you. But if you are trapped inside of an inferno, seeing the firemen break into the room is the greatest day of your life. The first point of today's sermon is that you are trapped in a fire and that you need rescue. But Jesus didn't come to state the obvious, hey, you're in a fire, be careful. Right? Jesus came to rescue us from the flames. And we're going to talk about that as well. But point number one, and the thing that's going to rescue your Christmas from being humdrum and routine is knowing that you are trapped in a fire and that you need rescue. If you haven't done so already, do so now. Open your Bibles to James 2. And we're going to read again uh, verses 8 and 11. James says in these verses, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, don't murder. And if you don't commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Right off the bat, it's worth noting that in this section, James is continuing his argument from last week, verses 1 to 7, which is to say, don't show, parti don't show partiality. And don't show favoritism. It doesn't matter whether you are rich or poor, whether you are black or white, old or young, hip or square. Right? Everybody is made in the image of God, and therefore everybody is equal in God's sight. There are no first-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven, but there aren't any second-class citizens either. Right? We are all equals. This brings us to uh, verse 8. In verse 8, James says, if you really fulfill the royal law, you are doing well. We can call a timeout, right? What is James talking about? Like, what is the royal law? It turns out there are a lot of commandments in the Bible. Go figure. You knew that, right? There's 613 to be exact. Fortunately for you and for me, those laws can be summarized uh, into two. In Matthew 23... A lawyer approaches Jesus and he asks him a question in order to test him. Teacher, he asks, which is the greatest commandment uh, in the law? You can kind of imagine him, his eyebrow raised. You know, he thinks he's got Jesus on the hook here. But Jesus answers him, you shall love your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. This twofold summation of the law, love God and love neighbor, is the royal law that James is talking about. It's the royal law because it comes directly from the mouth of Jesus, King of Kings, right, maker of heaven and earth. 
But it's also the royal law because it is the sum total of demands that God asks of us, his image bearers here on earth. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you really do this, James says, you're doing well. We could state it even stronger. If you really do this, you're perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. But, and this is a big but, if you show partiality, or commit adultery, or commit murder, or tell a lie, or cheat on an exam, or break the law at any point whatsoever, right, you are a lawbreaker. You are a transgressor. You are guilty as charged. Verse 10. For whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. You might be saying, that sounds a little extreme. You know, why am I guilty for all of it if only I break some small part of it? Well, consider an example from this week. One of the chores I'm responsible for in the mining house is taking out the trash. Every Thursday, the royal law, if you want to call it that, is thou shalt take out the trash. Now, when Megan says to me, thou shalt take out the trash, she doesn't really say it in Old English, but uh, she does tell me to, right? She's giving me one command that encapsulates a whole other, or a whole bunch of other, like, subcommands. Collect the garbage from our bathroom. Collect the garbage from our bedroom. Pick up after Coulter in the backyard. Put fresh trash bags in the cans, etc., etc. Now, if I do all of these things, but I fail to pick up after Coulter, or if I do all of these things, but fail to put new trash bags in the trash can, as far as Megan's concerned, I technically didn't take out the trash that week, right? I didn't do the job as, as expected. I didn't do the job as asked. You can read James verse 10 again. Whoever keeps the law but fails at one point, right, has become accountable for all of it. I know that well. Still, you might be thinking, it's, it sounds a little harsh or extreme. I mean, a lawbreaker, a transgressor, right, guilty, it's not like I'm an axe murderer or, or anything, which is fair, right? You were not, you haven't gone after anybody with an axe. But what you have done is this, you lie and you cheat and you steal. You take things that don't belong to you and you hold on to things that ought to be shared. You ignore the poor. You value objects more than people and there are people that you objectify. You're filled with anger and envy and pride. You don't love God with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength. And you don't love your neighbor as yourself. And here is why this is such a big deal and such a big problem for you and for me. When you commit these sins, you are doing them as image bearers of God. By design, right, your actions and your words we're meant to communicate to a watching world, this is who God is, and this is what God is like. But when you sin, and let's use the examples that James gives us here. 
when you show partiality, or when you commit adultery, or when you murder someone, what you are saying is that God plays favorites, that God is unfaithful to his promises, and that God is spiteful and lacks self-control. Friends, this isn't just slanderous. It's blasphemous. And God won't stand for it any more than your best friend or spouse would tolerate you saying the same thing about him or her. Though we are made in the image of God, we are not imaging God as we ought. We are not reflecting his heart and his character back to the world around us. We are lawbreakers. We are fire starters. And when we sin, we set our life and the lives of those around us on fire. We have set the world on fire. And if you don't believe me, all you have to do is turn on the nightly news. I hesitate to recommend it because it is a hard movie to watch. But all you have to do is watch this new film, um, Beasts of No Nation, about child soldiers in Central Africa, forced to kill, forced to eat people. It's a true story. The world is on fire. Don't believe me, ask your friends, ask your family. Would you describe your relationships with them as heavenly? Probably not. Right? You and I are trapped in a burning building, as it were, sparked by our sin. And if God doesn't do anything, we are going to get scorched. If you fail to grasp this point, right? if you ignore the urgency of yours and my situation, Jesus will never be sweet to you, and Christmas will be just another holiday we do this time of year. I don't want that for you. I want this to be a great Christmas, which is why you need to see your need, but you also need to see Jesus stepping into the fire in order to bring you out. And this brings us to point number two. Jesus entered the fire in order to get you out. Look at James 2, verse 12 with me. Lost my page. James 2, 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Friends, because we're all lawbreakers, because we set the world on fire and have no way of putting it out, or getting ourselves out. James says, speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. All right, let's call another time out. Law of liberty. What's James talking about? The law of liberty, it's not a particular law. And it's, it's not one of the 613, and it's not law number 614. All right, the law of liberty is the entire law. Right, the royal law, perfectly fulfilled by Jesus himself. Again, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says that not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That is, until he personally fulfills the law in its entirety, perfectly. Here's how this connects with Christmas. 
when human beings rejected God, right, and when human beings reject God, they break the world, right? They set it on fire. And that fire started in the, in the garden and it has spread out from there. And it's been burning ever since. Now, when this happened, Father, Son, and Spirit did some things and they said some things. And significantly, they promised to save the world and us. And here's the gist of their rescue plan. The Son of God would someday enter the world as a human being. He would become a fetus, and he would be born into the world as an infant. He would grow up into adolescence and adulthood. His entire life, the Son of God and the Son of Mary would keep the law perfectly. He would be subject to all the same tests and trials that you and I face every single day, but unlike you and me, he would ace the test, right? He would ace it on our behalf. That's not all, right? You know all those sins that you and I commit, and you know all the punishment that they deserve? Well, Jesus would take that too. Granted, it sounds a little far-fetched. God becoming a human being and doing all of this stuff for us, right? Sinners like you and like me. But on the cross, Jesus cried, it is finished. In other words, mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. The Son of God jumped into the burning building. And Jesus got burned. Jesus got singed. Right? He was scarred. And we, we get to go free. Like Darian. Like Tremaine. This is why James calls the law perfectly fulfilled by Jesus the law of liberty. Paul references the same idea in one of his letters. In Galatians, Paul writes, Now before faith came, we were held captives under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. And this, by the way, is James's very argument in 2.10. Same thing, right? But, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's us, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What Paul essentially is saying is that Jesus was cursed for us so we could go free. That Jesus stepped into a burning building so that we could go free. If you and I are in a burning building, the law of liberty is not do this and this and this and this so you can escape. The law of liberty is Jesus jumping into the fire and saying to you, I've done it all for you, now hold on to me. This is the law of liberty. Not jump through hoops of fire, but Jesus has jumped into the fire. The law of liberty is faith. It's trusting him. It's holding on to him. It's as simple as that. But it's a law of liberty in a second sense. Having been rescued from a burning building, it makes no sense for us to re-enter the flames. 
Liberty starts with a singular event, right? Jesus jumping into the fire and taking the curse for you. But liberty is not just that event. Liberty is life lived on the other side of the flames, right? Liberty is a lifestyle. Look at verse 12 again with me. James says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. In this verse, the verbs speak and act are in a Greek tense that stresses the continuing nature of these actions. In other words, be constantly speaking and always be acting in this particular way. The lifestyle that we are supposed to be living on the other side of the flames is a life of love. It's a life of forgiveness. It's a life of justice. It's a life of grace and of mercy. The word that gets translated mercy in verse 13 is the same word that is used to describe the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Now in that parable, Jesus describes a man who gets jumped by a bunch of thugs and is left for dead. A bunch of religious people see the broken, beat-up man and they walk past him. However, a Samaritan man sees him and he approaches him. And here's what Jesus says, and I'm quoting the parable now. When the Samaritan came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, which is several hundred dollars, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus, who's being tested by another lawyer at this time, right, go figure, asks, which of these three men do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer answers Jesus, the one who showed him mercy, which is the same word you have here in verse 13. And Jesus says, Yes. Now I want you to go and do likewise. The Samaritan sort of life is the kind of life that we are supposed to live. It is a life of love and of sacrifice and of mercy. Why is this kind of life liberating? It's because it's the kind of life that you and I were made for. You and I were made in the image of God, for the sake of imaging God. And anything less than this would not just be broken, it would be bondage. Think of it this way. A penguin in a cage isn't free, but a penguin in the tropics isn't free either. A penguin is free when it's in the right environment doing penguin sort of things, like sliding on the ice and eating fish and singing and dancing like they do in Happy Feet. Right? Similarly, you and I are free when we are in the right environment, right, outside of the flames, doing really human things like loving God, and like 
loving our neighbor. Jim Morrison rightly said, the most important kind of freedom is to be what you really are. And what you really are is God's image bearer here on earth. You were made to image him, to reflect his heart and character to the world. And you were made for this, and friends, you were set free for this. It is five days until Christmas. This really is the most wonderful time of the year. But not necessarily because there will be parties for hosting and marshmallows for toasting and caroling out in the snow. Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year because it is the advent, which is to say, it is the arrival of your hero. It is the coming of your rescuer. It is Jesus entering into our world on fire in order to set us free. Let's pray.